You're listening to audio from Ascend Church. For more information about Ascend or to access more gospel-centered tools to grow as a disciple of Christ, visit ascendkc.org. So open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. (laughs) And some of you are thinking, oh great, the biblical counseling pastor opening to Matthew 18, right? You guys all know what Matthew 18, or at least the, the credit Matthew 18 gets is the church what? discipline passage, right? And so I want to help transform our thinking a little bit about that this morning from church discipline into church restoration, right? Because the passage really isn't about discipline as much as it is about restoration. But even after that, so that'll be some of the context that we lay in order to walk through forgiveness and walk through what unconditional forgiveness is as it begins with an authentic relationship with Jesus. You see, this is uh, January 2nd, 2022. Like when I say that, does that just sound weird to some of us? 2022, right? It sounds like the year of the Jetsons, the year that some of those things that we saw out into the future with flying cars and microwaves and just weird things that the Jetsons had and they made food really fast and these little oven things and they came out on conveyor belts and that's weird. All all those things are starting to become realities today. But how right now Right now is, is just a tough time as we've made it through, as Pastor Jeff mentioned, COVID. The last two years have just been really wonky, right? Just a little bit crazy. And some of us aren't sure how to adjust to all these different things. And there's a lot of things that have happened. I think of this time of year too, when we think of January, I think of this time of year as the first of many firsts. I get to greet you, for instance, on the first Sunday in 2022. I get to preach the first sermon for a sin church of 2022. There's going to be a lot of other firsts. We had a first for our family this last weekend too. We went, have you guys ever done an escape room? We did an escape room. It was our first time as a family. um, And praise the Lord, they let us out because we couldn't get out on our own. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what they would have done if we didn't figure it out. Like they, or I, I don't know what we would have done if they didn't have a key to let us out, right? But there's a lot of firsts. Uh, it's just, it's awesome to think through uh, someone in this room may be the first one to have a baby this year. That's going to be pretty cool. There's going to be someone in this room, maybe that there'll be the, the first salvation of Ascend Church in 2022. Somebody in this room may be the first baptism of 2022. So there's a lot of firsts, things that'll happen this year. And I'm grateful I get to preach on this day and, and proclaim to you God's word on the first Sunday of 2022. At the first of the year, some of you will begin to implement different things. How many of you do your New Year's resolutions? Depending on where you're at on that, some people disagree with them. Some people hold fast to them. And um, I I have a little bit of a middle road opinion about New Year's resolutions. So I'll I'll explain that in just a a little bit here in a second. Um, But resolutions themselves are not necessarily bad things. But I prefer to set goals. Goals typically have plans that follow them. Resolutions are statements typically about what I want to do for myself. I want to set goals on what I can help do for other people, what I can help do for my family, what I can help do for the church, 
right? And so sometimes resolutions, when they have goals and plans, are awesome things. But we want to make sure as we're planning our goals for this year, we're thinking about others. And speaking of goals, though, it's really good to develop goals. I love goals. I love to set goals. In fact, um, I, I read people and read leaders who talk about goals. And I read this last week, a, a quote by the great theologian, Yogi Berra. Thank you for laughing. <laughs> I was hoping that wouldn't fall on uh, ears and people thought, I really believe Yogi Berra is a theologian. But he said this, if you don't set goals, you'll never reach them. Or like they say in golf, if you aim for nothing, you'll hit it every time. Right? So we want us to have resolutions. We want to have goals. We want to set things. And goals with plans beat resolutions every day though. And the line of firsts, uh, though no one wants to be the first to fail, right? I mean, no one sets out to say, I'm going to do these things and I'm going to fail. And the hard thing is, is typically resolutions within 90 days, most people stop. But with goals and plans, resolutions continue, right? So, uh, but nobody wants to be the first to fail. No one wants to be the first to fail at anything, but because this planet is full of sinners, there are lots of opportunities to fail, right? There's lots of opportunities to sin against one another. One another. Uh, raise your hand if you've already failed this week, right? We should all be raising our hands because we know that we are sinners and we have need for forgiveness. The good news is, is when you do fail, when you do sin, there is a God who's granted the ability to repent, and seek forgiveness. And that is a gift from God. That is an awesome gift to forgive one another. This morning we'll be talking or taking a look at one of the most important passages in Scripture. I think this passage is on forgiveness and will help you walk into this new year with a clean slate. Like it's just nice to be able to kind of clean everything off and and walk into the new year after driving. So we drove out here from Idaho. Our car is a mess. I just want to clean that thing off. Like, I don't know how many of you have a little bit of OCD when it comes to those things, but I'm like, you grab the door handle and you look at your hand and it's black because of all the road grime that's on it. It's just a mess. And so I want to clean that thing off. I want to start with a fresh, clean vehicle. Right? So we want to start the new year. I think all of us want to start the new year with just a fresh, clean slate in terms of understanding the gospel, who God is, and relationships. As we step into this, the most important parable you need to understand that we're going to go through is today. For living an authentic Christian life. That will help us understand how to live an authentic Christian life. As we step into the new year, we must understand what Jesus thinks about forgiveness. D.A. Carson states it this way. We forgive because we have been forgiven by God and no offense against us can remotely compare to the incalculable amount we ourselves have been forgiven. And before jumping into the passage we're going to, to dive into a little bit, we're going to look at the context, right? So we're going to look at Matthew 18, 15 through 20 as part of the context. Because forgiveness is a huge topic. And sometimes one that is, one that is very misunderstood. 
Sometimes people say, oh, I, I, I apologize. And they think an apology is forgiveness. Apology is not really a forgiveness. It's a, it's a defense, actually. So we want to make sure we understand forgiveness isn't just an apology or saying I'm sorry. Forgiveness is actually a transaction that happens between two believers as a result of the forgiveness and overlooking an offense of a sin or, or handling it pro- properly. Where there is a necessity for forgiveness, there's also been an act of sin. In an act of love, Jesus gives us the methodology necessary to keep the church pure, biblical, and at peace with one another. That's just an amazing thing. So Jesus not only came, died on this planet, he actually gives us the prescription for how to live life together in community. Let's look back at the context of confronting a brother in sin before jumping into understanding forgiveness. So Matthew 18, 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, right? Verse 15 says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. In many churches, this is known as the passage where they get church, where they get a church discipline policy from. I would prefer to say, instead of church discipline policy, that we create church restoration policies. I believe that represents and reflects the heart of our Savior a little bit more. He didn't desire to discipline anybody. He desired to restore everybody. And when we discuss sin, by the way, we have to be clear. It is those that have violated God's law for self-gain or an immoral act considered to be a transgression against God's law. It's not merely a preference. It's not merely saying you did something I didn't like and therefore I'm angry at you and and so you sinned. It's not a violation of a preference. We have to understand it's a violation of God's law. Because if we, if we think, um, so, so I've, I've been married for uh, 26 years. And some of you say, okay, we'll pray for your wife more. That's awesome. She needs more prayer for being married to me. But because we've been married for 26 years, I have sinned against her greatly. I'm, but she's not looking for every sin to hold me accountable for either. Right? And I'm not looking for every time she sins to hold her accountable. So we're not sin searchers either. We have to be careful in how we handle sin. But when we sin, it's a violation primarily against God's law. Jesus gives us the, the path and prescription for restoration when somebody does sin. When a brother or sister is in sin, Jesus gives this method of restoration. Right, and we see this in Matthew, Matthew 18. He graciously provides this. If your brother sins against you, if your brother has violated the word and law of God, and this is an offense that you are unable to overlook, or in other words, if your brother has offended you through recognizable sin, whether he meant to or not, whether through commission or omission, whether he meant to or not, right, when he sins or she sins against you, And you are unable to let it go or unable to allow love to cover a multitude of sins. And this has caused separation in your relationship. Primarily, it's caused separation in their relationship between them and God. 
right? So when you're more concerned about your brother or sister who has sinned against you, thereby violating God's law, thereby violating God himself, when you're more concerned about their relationship with God than than you are the ramifications against you, then you're going to go to your brother and sister or sister in a way that is honorable, in a way that is right, in a way that will hopefully win them over, right? But when you go with your defense prepared and you demand justice for you, how many times, for those of you who have confronted somebody in sin and you do it that way, does it ever work? It never works. Why do we keep doing it? Right? So we want to make sure our concern for them is because of the violation they have against God himself. The ramifications end up being us personally. So if you go to them, confront them, and they are won over, then awesome, then good. Scripture says, then good. You have gained your brother in verse 15. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you. Right, if he does not listen to that. So the helpful thing is sometimes another brother or sister can help win them over because they're not personally connected to it. There's not emotion connected to them like, they, like it is with us when we're violated, right? So it's helpful sometimes to take another person to help mediate between the two parties. <clears throat> and that's why it's happening. Again, the point is reconciliation, not confrontation. Right, the point is to figure out how to embrace again, not punch, not fight. Right? It's not a passage about confrontation. It's a passage about love. It's about kindness, compassion, and a deep love for the other person, and a desire to see their relationship with Jesus thriving. That's what, if, if that's what we desire in our confrontation, then that's a healthy way to keep moving forward. If we desire justice for ourselves, then, then I think you have to ask your own self the question, am I doing that with the right motive? What do I desire out of this confrontation? It's hard because our hearts are deceitfully wicked, right? Jeremiah seventeen nine, And so because of that, sometimes we don't even understand our own motives and moving forward with that. Now, if the sin is still not recognized and there is no restoration in the relationship, then and only then do you begin including others and bringing them in, right? If that does not work, then now you tell it to the church. Hopefully someone else in the church can win them over. One of the pastors or elders can step into it and help win them over. Again, this is a process. So when somebody gets to the point of being disciplined out of the church, it started a long time ago and was walked through, right? Because the whole goal is to bring them to restoration, The goal is not vengeance or the goal is not out to hurt someone or just beat people up because they're spiritually blind at some level. The goal is to restore one who has offended God. And the ramifications of that offense of God has hurt other people. If that does not work, then they're to be cast out and considered a tax collector or as a disloyal Israelite hired by Romans. I mean, just think about that for a second. That is is hard. It is very hard. Verse 16. But if he does not listen, take two 
to others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Right? And all subsequent interactions at that point are for evangelistic purposes. So if your brother sins against you, like that is something serious. And if it's worth confronting, then we, we have to understand that as some serious violation of God's moral written law. Not just, not just a violation of my preference. So that's a, that's a big deal. I want to share a story with you about one of the most serious uh, counseling situations I have had. Um, this was a, a girl who was 20 years old. And honestly, I think at some level of all the people I've ever counseled probably had the most reason to not forgive somebody. I'll share a little bit about her story with you. Uh, she was a 20-year-old girl who had reason for deep hurt and pain. And all the people, out of all the people I've ever counseled, all the people I have ever met, She was born into a family that was incredibly dysfunctional. Her father was the equivalent of a pastor in a satanic cult. Her mother served in that cult. There were other men in that cult that served sort of as elders or deacons within within that cult. Her mom was completely broken by others' sin as well. And as a result, allowed a lot of horrific things to happen to her daughter. As we counseled through this situation, as we walked through the story, as it unfolded, um, I learned that part of their worship services included music that have tunes we would hear in churches that we would be familiar with and attend. And maybe even in this church, you would hear the tune of some of the songs they would play in these cult services, but they would change the words to worship Satan, not Jesus. So when somebody's saved out of that kind of a cult ministry and they go to a church, guess what happens? There's a lot of triggers that happen and it's hard. There was also in these services, it included sexual um, offerings Sexual, you know, sacrifices and offerings in these services. This girl was, it happened to her between the ages of 12 to 18. She was forced to participate in these services where multiple leaders would have sex with her and tie her to an Asherah pole while her father read scripture. Like, it's just horrific. It's just bad. Like, of all the people I know, she would have on this planet, the biggest reason not to forgive these men or her father, right? Who's supposed to protect and love and cherish. But all these men should have been thrown in jail. If you're like me, right? You're like, all these men need to be thrown in jail immediately, right? And so we counseled. I learned more. uh, And after working through things, we did end up calling the police and have authorities involved and they started investigations. And so there was those right things that were moving, But for her, after working through counseling for months, for her, this girl was able to, in her heart, forgive the actions of these men, releasing them from from their debt. 
I think about that still today and I want to cry because that is an enormous debt. That is an enormous thing. But she forgave them. And actually, at one, in one of our sessions, um, she was able to f- write all of the ways people had sinned against her on a three-by-five card. We took those three-by-five cards out to the back and built a big bonfire in a barrel. She prayed to release those. Every single action, she prayed to release it. And when she did, she dropped it in the barrel and let it burn as an, as a, as an offering back to the Lord to say, I forgive these men. Because when she can forgive these men of these things that happened to her, she no longer has to live in bitterness and under the weight of that sin. She has forgiven them. She can actually be free from it. And it's not that she forgets it, right? I'm not saying she's forgotten those things. I'm not saying, but it is a marvelous thing for her to be able to Forgive. It is a miraculous thing. Anytime we forgive sin. John MacArthur says this, you are never more like God than you are in the moments when you choose to forgive. You are never more like God than in the moments you are when you choose to forgive. Her devotion to God, her trust in God, her love for the Lord and total, complete understanding of forgiveness and the gospel as applied to her own life, she was able to transition that to forgive others. Now, let's take a look at Matthew 18, 21 through 35, the main part of our text for this morning, where we see the unconditional forgiveness brings an authentic relationship with Jesus, right? We'll talk about four points this morning. Let's look at the first one. The frequency and authenticity authenticity of forgiveness. The frequency and authenticity of forgiveness. Verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him. So this is following the passage we just went through. Right? The, of, of forgiveness. How do we forgive sin and how do we confront it? Then Peter came and said to him. Lord. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. And so in this moment, like, I I think you got to appreciate Peter, right? You got to appreciate this guy because he's like, Lord, like, I know the law that, was all, that had always been given. Like the rabbis would always say that we should forgive three times because that's what the Lord did in Amos chapter one. That's what God did in Amos chapter one. So the rabbis would say forgive three times. And so Peter's like, Lord, I'll double it and add one and then that will be right. That will be good. And so he's like, how about seven times? And Jesus is like, no, that's not, that's not what we're going for here, Peter. That's not what we're, we're not trying to count in order to understand forgiveness. But Peter is being a little flamboyant here. And another commentates that he's being magnanimous. So Peter is doubling the usual allotted amount, right? You, mo- you almost get the feeling Peter's patting himself on the back a little bit. Like, that's so cool. I can do that. Like, we'll double it and add one, Right? But Jesus says, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In other words, an innumerable amount of times. An incalculable amount of times. 
forgive forever. Like it's not that we go, okay, let's, let's, let's multiply 70 times 7 and come up with a number. It's not even that. Like, and even if it was, it would be forgiven 70 times 7 for the exact same sin. So how often are we to forgive? Forever. How often does Christ forgive you? Forever. Past, present, and what? Future. So 70 times 7. By the way, forgiveness for sins committed does not insinuate or indicate that it is imperative to forget the sin. I I would not stand before you after telling you a story about a girl who suffered horrific sin committed against her. I never told her to forget it. That would not be right. To use that as a way to allow ministry for other people, though, could be very good. Right? Second Corinthians chapter 1. You're able to comfort others by the comfort in which you've been given. So that's an amazing thing. To be authentic in forgiveness. Thomas Watson says this. That we ought to, stri- we ought to strive against all thoughts of revenge. When we, when we will not do our enemies mischief. But wish them well. We are to grieve at their calamities, pray for them, seek reconciliation with them, and show ourselves ready on all occasions to relieve them for the sin that they commit against us. So it's really this. Resist revenge, Romans twelve nineteen. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Don't return evil, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays evil for evil. He says, bless your enemies, Luke 6.28. Bless those who curse you. That is hard. We're to bless those who curse us. We're to lean into them and help them. Grieve at the, you're to grieve at their calamities, not rejoice in their suffering, right? That's easy. It's easy to think, well, they got what they deserve. It's easy to kind of rejoice when they suffer different calamities because they violated you. Proverbs twenty four seventeen. do not rejoice when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. This is authentic Christianity. Pray for them. Do you pray for those who, and not just like pray pray against them, right? Don't just pray against them. Pray for them. Pray God's blessings on them. Pray for God's love for them. Matthew 5.44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Seek reconciliation with him, Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends upon you to be at peace with who? Only those who've never sinned against you, right? No. Be at peace with all men. So far as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Be willing to come to their relief, Exodus 23, 4. 
If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkeys wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. So you want good for those who have violated you. It's a hard thing, but it's a good thing. We're to keep short accounts and unconditional forgiveness. The point two there, keep short accounts and unconditional forgiveness. Verse 23, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who is wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one of One was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had and payment was to be made. The comparison is all comparable to the kingdom of heaven and believers who have been forgiven much. See, settling accounts at that time was a normal thing. We do it today, right? You reconcile your bank accounts. Do we still, do we still reconcile checking, checkbooks? Does, does anybody still have a checkbook? Some of you are like, what? Well, you don't even know what you're talking about. It's all online banking, right? No one has, very few people have checkbooks anymore. We have checking accounts, but only a few of us still have checkbooks where we actually write checks, right? Because everything's done. My, my son uh, got a phone recently, so everything's like, dad, don't you know how to use Apple Pay? You know, I'm like, oh, I don't know. These credit cards on our phones, like somebody's going to steal it, right? Like, <laughs> I'm partly kidding. <laughs> it's all conspiracy, though. Once you get your credit card into your phone, then everybody has access to it, right? No, but we still reconcile our accounts. We still reconcile what we have to do. We still, like, if you're a business owner, you still reconcile your accounts. You still want to make sure your accounts are being paid, your employees are being paid. If you, have, uh, if you have a business where you have multiple things going on at different points, like there's this sale and that sale and this purchase and that purchase, and at the end of the month, you have to reconcile things. So this king is reconciling his accounts. This particular servant was most likely a trusted and highly responsible member of his household or even a provincial governor. This today could be seen as like a civil servant, as a governor or a mayor or something like that, where they're dealing with all the accounts and bringing things back for the king. This particular servant was brought to the king and owed 10,000 talents, which was the largest denomination of currency at the time, right? If you think about it, like 10,000 talents is... to try and translate that for us to understand it, uh, it's such a ridiculous number. It starts to just be like monopoly money at some point, right? Like when you own so many properties and you're just throwing money down in monopoly. And at some level, it's almost the equivalent to the national debt. Do you guys know what the national debt is? It's like $29 trillion. $29 trillion. Like do we even understand $29 trillion? I don't. If you understand 29 trillion, we should talk afterwards. <laughs> right, 29 trillion is just such a crazy number. And so if, if, if he could not pay this debt that he owed, which was the equivalent of trillions of dollars, no, like he couldn't pay it off in his lifetime. There was just no way possible. And it's like 200,000 years of labor for this guy. If he worked, it would be six. 60 million working days. 
I didn't research to find out how many days the average person lives on this planet, but I'm thinking it's not close to 60 million. Right? That's a lot of days. Now, the point is this. The amount of money that he owed was so incredibly large, there was just no way he was going to ever be able to repay it. The debt was so huge. There's just no way. And it's incredible when you think about the, the hugeness or the vastness of that debt. So the king gave an order. There's no way he could repay it, right? So the king gave an order. He, he gave a judgment. This, you sell this man and his family. This order to, to be sold is huge. It has great life implications. It's like a judge swinging a gavel. We just ring judgment. Boom. There it is. Done. And I think at this point, the king is, is getting to the end of his rope because it takes a while to build up that kind of a debt. So he makes the decision. And there's no changing it now, by the way. In, in a monarchy, when a king makes a decision, there's no changing it. Like, done. Boom. Moving on. Next. Right? It's a final decision. He and his family, this man and his family, this servant and his family would be sold into a different kingdom. They would be transferred from one king or master to another. Which means they may be sold to a different country. And they would go from the known to the unknown. They would have to move. They would have to change their environment, their friends, their security, their stability. Everything they knew, they would lose it. Everything they've worked for, it's gone. It's all gone, just like that. Right? His debt's so huge, he couldn't repay it. Can you imagine having all that debt on yourself? Can you imagine $29 trillion of debt on you? I mean, we all have, at some level, most of us have some level of debt, whether it's credit cards, home mortgage, car loans, school loans, consumer debt. Um, if all of that was recalled on you right now, could you repay it? Most of us probably can't. And that would be the equivalent of the government going, all right, your loan is recalled. You can't repay it. We're selling you to a foreign country, you and your family. Right? So this guy's going, oh my goodness. So verse 26, he does what all of us would do. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. Interestingly enough, the fact that this servant fell to his knees to implore the king means something intrinsically about that king. It means that king had to be gracious. Remember, it's a monarchy. When kings make decisions, they're final. So this servant knew that he could implore this king which means he's a gracious king. Which means he's, com he's a compassionate king. It means he wants to see the best for his servants. The king allows him to beg or to grovel, to ask for patience, when it's likely this king has already been patient for a long time. Right? It took a long time to build up that debt. That's a huge debt. 
It was, it was not likely overnight. Aren't we all begging servants, though, at some level, when I think about that? Aren't we all begging servants? The debt we build up individually could never be paid by all of us collectively, right? The debt we owe to Christ could never be paid by if all of us collectively work together to pay one person's debt owed in here. We couldn't do it. It's that big. Due to the amount this slave owes, it's so ludicrous and equally ridiculous that he would actually say the words, I will repay you. What? How is that possible to repay? How will that even be? How will that come about? Verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him. (laughs) What? Are you kidding? Like, think about that. If you were being personally held responsible for $27 trillion, you and your family are being sold to a foreign country in a foreign land, being ripped out of your home and just done. And you said, please have pity. Please have mercy on us. I will repay you everything. Knowing the statement, I will repay you everything, will never really ever happen. You know that. The king knows that. And he says what? Okay. I, I, I have pity on you. I have compassion for you. I forgive all of it. What? It's just amazing. Like how do you respond in that moment? How do you respond when such a great debt has been forgiven? Like... I'm just, I'm just trying to think at some level, how do you say thank you? Like, what, what do you say? What do you do? How do you honor the king for releasing you of that debt? I mean, do you walk out of there and just at the top of your lungs proclaim, praise the Lord, I am free. I mean, what, what do you say? What do you do? Do you call your friends? Can you believe this? Can you believe what just happened? I've been forgiven all of this debt. I'm free. Or something else. Let's take a look at what this servant did. When forgiveness is taken for granted. Verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. What just happened? (laughs) Like, what just happened? How could he be forgiven of this monstrous debt? 27 something trillion dollars and then go choke a fellow servant over here for $10,000. A fellow servant, by the way. So in the first scene, we have a king reconciling his accounts with a servant. 
Now we have a servant with a fellow servant. They're the same level. They're the same people. It's not a higher servant over another. They're fellow servants. And he says, you owe me a thousand dollars. You need to pay up. After he's been forgiven, like, it's just, it's just incredible to me when I think about that. It's incredible to me when I think about how, how it's so easy for somebody to be forgiven of so much and then hold others accountable for so little. These, both of these men served at the pleasure of the king to handle accounts. They were both trusted advisors and businessmen. These guys were on the same footing of equality. And when you ponder that, it just gets more grotesque. The sin. Because it is in direct violation. It is like harsh and angry. The the servant accepted responsibility of graciousness and was incredibly willing to be forgiven of trillions of dollars and yet remained unwilling to forgive someone of a far lesser amount. Not a completely insignificant amount, but a far lesser amount. R.T. France said it this way, the second slave's debt is not in itself insignificant, some three or four months worth of wages, but it represents only one six hundred thousandth one six hundred thousandth of the debt the first slave has just been forgiven of. It's only one six hundred thousandth of the amount, and he's choking him out for it. Can you imagine? It's like, maybe at some level, it's like us today, if we were to own a couple of homes and our debt was recalled and that had been forgiven and you have a renter that's late three months uh, on rent and our debt had been forgiven huge and we go choke the guy out for being three months late on his rent. It's like, really? Like, is that, is that ungracious? Like it just seems like it's an incredibly ungracious move. And to proclaim, pay me what you owe, just seems crazy to me. So what happens next? The second begging servant, verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the same words. It's the same exact thing. Fell down to his knees and said, have patience with me and I will repay you. Sounds reasonable. Especially in light of what happened the first time. We're not told the reason for the debt or the situation. But in verse 30, he says, it says, he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. What? (laughs) Are you kidding? You've been forgiven this. You go choke this guy out and now you throw him in jail until he could repay the debt. At some level, um, it's kind of ridiculous, right? So he refused, by the way, is an imperfect tense of a persistent refusal. 
Like he persistently, aggravatedly resisted. He was determined to refuse this guy's plead. And since the first servant could not sell his fellow servant, he couldn't sell him because he didn't own him. So instead, he throws him into debtor's prison. The irony of this is he's like, hey, listen, I'm going to throw you into prison so you can repay your debt and you're going to stay there until you repay it. It's not like Monopoly when you go to jail and you can still keep making money on your properties. Right? You guys play Monopoly? It's not like that. It's once you're in prison, you're not making any more money. So it's ironic how the forgiven can forget. It's shameful how quickly the forgiven can beg for mercy for their own debt and move to justice for a debt owed to them. It's horrific, actually, how the forgiven can choke out the debtor following such a glorious remission of their own debt. This might be a crazy question, but have you ever demanded justice or held someone accountable for things they owed to you? Not, just, not, just, not necessarily just financial. Emotional. Spiritual. Relational. Have you ever held somebody in contempt because they owed you something? Well, we'll look at the text and see what happens to this guy next in the story. Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place... They were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. So now we go from the court where the uh, king is reigning judgment and taking all of his accounts. And, And so the fellow servants, these guys had actually seen that and are now out in an outer court area where they're talking amongst themselves. So they saw what had taken place. And I think at some level, they were probably just as appalled at what had taken place as we are. Are you kidding? You're going to be forgiven that and hold this guy accountable to this? These servants, the fellow servants, were just as appalled at that. So they went and told the master. They were in a place where they observed all these things. And you can imagine what they're thinking to themselves. I can't believe this. Are you kidding? I mean, what's the talk between them? Oh my goodness, it's so crazy. At one point, they were so amazed that the king forgave a debt. And then now they're like so appalled that their fellow servants choking this guy out. They were greatly distressed or incredibly sorrowful. They were saddened by what they saw. The sadness and sorrow and distress was not because of the violent act of choking. It was because of the king's actions of forgiveness and the counteraction to not forgive. This was an extreme moral violation. So what happens when we're failing to forgive others? Let's take a look at that in verse 32. Failing to forgive others. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should not have mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should repay the debt. 
the king summoned, again, just another gracious act of the king to look at this guy face to face. He could have rained judgment from where he sat and said, sell him, I'm done with him, off with him. But he didn't. He brought him back into his presence. The king could have pronounced death or sold the servant into slavery from that very moment. Then the rebuke comes at this point because he loves them. The rebuke, you know, comes because he wants to restore, right? The rebuke comes. At this point, the king is completely justified. The king has tried to do all that he can. He was patient. He was long-suffering. He was forgiving. A debt you would never have been able to repay on your own was cleared, was forgiven. A debt that is so large it had to be dealt with only through forgiveness of debt. You could have never repaid it. He said to him, should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant the way that I had mercy on you? So his master delivered him to the jailers, which also means tormentors, torturers. This is, this is to go to a workhouse where residents were found to have backs scarred with fresh wounds. Like when he turned him over, that was a bad place to go. The king basically stated, I forgave all your debt. Why? Because you pleaded with me. Because you asked. You confessed that you have this debt and you asked for forgiveness of it. And I forgave it. And then you went out and held somebody else accountable for something far less. Even this type of graciousness from this king came to an end. When the servant had been forgiven a great debt, then chokes his fellow servant out for a lesser debt, the king said, I'm done. No more. You don't understand what you've been forgiven. Then this, verse 35, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Wow. Does that sting a little? Is that heavy? Like there's a lot required of us when we've been forgiven and we understand what forgiveness is, we have to forgive. And that means exactly what it says it means. We are servants with an opportunity to forgive our brothers as, as, the, as our king has forgiven us. To understand forgiveness is to grant forgiveness. If you truly understand what you've been forgiven of and the penalty for your sin, you will be willing to grant the same forgiveness to others. Church, right now we have an opportunity for a fresh start. We have the ability for a new start on 2022. You realize that the world will know that we're believers by the way we what? Love one another. The world will know we're believers by the way that we love one another. By the way that we forgive one another. If it's true that we are most like God when we are in those moments of forgiveness, that is awesome. 
and the best way we could actually love one another is through forgiveness. You know, 1 Corinthians 10, 13 talks about, or 1 Corinthians 13 talks about the spiritual gifts, right? And you could have the gift of preaching. You could have the gift of prophecy. You could have the gift of discernment. You can have all of these gifts and you can use all of these gifts for the glory of God. But if you don't have love, you're a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to start 2022 or any year or any day or any week or any month being a noisy gong and a clanging symbol because I can't have love for my brother or sister when I can see the enormous debt that I've been forgiven of is huge. And so I can't hold my brother or sister accountable for this small thing, right? It doesn't mean I forget the sin. It doesn't mean I enable people to sin. It doesn't mean I pacify the sin. It doesn't mean, right, there still has to be proper things if we can't let go of the sin people are committing. That's why we went through that passage earlier. There's a, there's a way and a method to confront. But we have to understand the glorious nature of what we've been forgiven of and the enormity of that in order to best celebrate and live this life of unconditional forgiveness. Because our unconditional forgiveness begins with an authentic relationship with Jesus. We have an awesome opportunity in front of us. It's a fresh new year, fresh new start, lots of things. We could go home today, journal, and think about the people we either need to forgive or seek forgiveness from. We can start with a clean slate. We can do that. Right? Because we want to make sure the Father sees us and forgives us all those things. And understanding how we have been forgiven is just an awesome thing. Proverbs 3.27 says, Do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is within your power to do it doesn't say anything about how they violated you. It just says, do not withhold it if it, was, if it is within your power to do it. 